from Scripture. So if you'd like to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 35. In your pew Bible, that will be on page 1054, 1054. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, starting at verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I'd like to ask you a series of questions that would appreciate you thinking seriously about these for just a few minutes. What are you looking for? What brought you to church today? What did you expect to find? How does your faith inform those expectations? And how about your habits and traditions? What role do they play in your presence here today? Do you come seeking something that you've longed for all your life? Do you long for anything so bad you could taste it? If a trusted friend or relative told you that she'd found it and brought you here to encounter it for the first time, what would that be like? What would it be like to find out that you've been expecting the wrong thing? How would you process a complete fundamental change in your expectations? What if worshiping and serving in the local church wasn't about what you want and need from the Lord, but what the Lord wants and needs from you? That question bears repeating. What if worshiping and serving in the local church wasn't about what you want or need from the Lord, but about what the Lord wants and needs from you? Think about that. I've been affected profoundly by this television series that some of you have heard about and know a lot about and others probably still don't know. It's called The Chosen. It's a remarkable experience to watch it. And I, I'm not going to lie, I really, really hope you will. I really hope you will. I am convinced that you will be blessed if you do. And just to set the, the ground a little bit for you, if you don't know what it's about, it's a TV series that was created 
on faith. I mean, really on faith. Like they, they shot a few episodes with the money that they had from one generous donor. And then they told people, if you want to see more, donate. And the whole thing is driven by a crowdsourced funding. And now, after three seasons, they have raised millions of dollars from people all over the world, thousands of donors, donors who give five or ten dollars to pay it forward, and donors who give hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's how profoundly this thing has affected people. You, you have to watch it through streaming video, and the first season's on Amazon Prime, it's on Netflix, and uh, you can also download an app, just look up The Chosen in the App Store, and using the app, you can watch the entire three seasons, which you can also very easily send to your television set if you have a smart TV, and if you have a dumb TV, you can watch it on your app, you watch it on your computer, there's a million ways you can do this, and you know, if you're old school and you've upgraded your VCR to a DVD player, <laughs> they make DVDs of The Chosen that you can put in your DVD player. Unfortunately, I don't think they have VHS tapes. But if you're old school and you'd rather read a book, it just so happens that the entire thing has been put into book form and we have in uh, the pastor's bookshelf, our new bookshop, uh, copies of the first season or the first segment book. And so the text is taken from the dialogue and, and so forth of the chosen with appropriate uh, embellishment so you can understand what you're reading in the way you would if you were watching. So. Yes, I have used the pulpit to promote something, and it's rare for me to do that, but in this case, I commend it to you wholeheartedly. I think about this all the time. When I was away uh, for my private weekend, I wanted more than anything to focus on Christ, and whenever I got distracted, I pulled out my iPad and I watched an episode of The Chosen because I just wanted to make my mind entirely focused on Christ. And I thought, well, okay, if I get to craving media or something, you know, then that's the media that I will go to. But uh, just so happens I'm listening to the audiobook version of the book series because I can't get enough. So that's where I'm headed because I want to read some things with you right now. Those questions that I asked you at the start of the service, or the, the message rather, those questions I asked you were the kind of questions I saw the apostles asking or the soon-to-be apostles when they encountered Jesus for the first time. So I want to read from you. Basically, if you've seen this, the, the Chosen, then you'll recognize this dialogue. But, but uh, this is where Simon, right after the part we just read, um, is talking to his wife, Eden, about what's happened. I want you to hear this. So just use your imagination as I read. Simon smiles ruefully and lowers his head, and Eden puts her hands on her hips and sighs, and she says, last night you told me the truth. Let's continue with that. He approaches and sits on a stool before her, beginning slowly. He said, I worked for hours last night, and I couldn't even catch one fish the entire night, and Andrew and the boys showed up. Thank you for that, by the way. And none of us could catch one fish the entire night. It was horrible. 
And this morning we finally gave up and we went to shore, but there was this teacher on the shore and Andrew knew who he was, but I'll talk about that later. He told me to cast one more time, which made no sense, but I did it anyway because of the way he looked at me. And then so many fish showed up, they were pouring into the boat. So many kept coming that Zebedee's ended up filling both of our boats, enough to pay off our whole debt. Eden hardly knows what to say. She stares at him wide-eyed. What, Simon? Should be, Simon should be leaping for joy, she thinks. Why don't you seem happy about this? He sits there, eyes cast down. He says, this is hard to explain. More than what you just told me? No, it's like the story of Elijah and Elisha. She's familiar with it, of course. And she says, yes, Elijah was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and Elijah the prophet walked up and threw his cloak over him, right? And a calling to follow him. And without delay, she says, as if reciting, Elijah slaughtered the oxen, burned the plow, and left everything behind. Yes, Simon says. Simon looks at her full in the face now, eyes shining. The teacher, Andrew, told me, but I didn't believe him at first. He's the Messiah. Eden stares at him, speechless, and Simon rises. I know it sounds impossible, but what I saw with my own eyes... Well, he made boatfuls of fish appear out of nowhere, and the words he spoke, the one John told Andrew was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was him. And then he called me to follow him, and Andrew and James and John to go where he was going and to learn from him. And he said, I wouldn't be a fisherman anymore, but I would catch people instead. And her husband grins and he says, I don't even know what that means. So there's a little excerpt for you. A little later, in chapter 47, Simon and Andrew leave Eden. Now, I think this is really funny. I'm going to paraphrase to speed myself up here a little bit. But there's this really hilarious dialogue because she's packed lunches for them on their journey with Jesus. And they have this dialogue about how silly they're gonna feel if the other apostles don't have lunches too, right? Because it's embarrassing, you know, that, that she's like a mother packing them their lunches so they can go out on their journey with the Messiah. And so they have this great conversation about, you know, should we pack lunches or not? And won't we feel silly if the others don't have lunches? And finally, one of them, I think Simon says, well, it's not like we've ever followed a Messiah before, so we don't know what the rules are. <laughs> Doesn't that make these people sound real to you? Because they were real, right? They, they were real people. And what I love so much about The Chosen is that for the first time in my life, I see portrayals of Jesus and the apostles the way I read them the way they seem to me when I study scripture and as I pray and get to know my Lord as my personal savior and Lord. And it's the way I talk with him. When I talk with him, you wouldn't believe how funny conversations happen daily with me and especially on Sunday mornings when I'm getting up here to talk to you and I say things like, Jesus, should I have packed the lunch? I mean, it's the same kind of craziness, you know, like 
I don't even know whether I should do this or not do this or whatever, but I want to share one more thing with you because here's where the story takes a turn that we need to pay close attention to, and it goes back to those questions that I asked you as I started talking. What are you expecting? What did you think this was about? And what if you're wrong? So they're on their way to Cana, and the apostles, lunch is packed and everything, on their way with Jesus to Cana, And he's invited them to go to this wedding and they don't know why. And he, this conversation happens as Jesus leads Simon and Andrew followed by Thaddeus, Mary and two Jameses and John on the walk toward Cana. Simon chews vigorously on an apple and he has an idea. I know that look, Andrew says, remember that's his brother. As Simon presses the fruit into his brother's hands and hurries up next to Jesus and he says, Master, yes, Simon, I was thinking if this wedding is worth the journey for you, who has so much to do, perhaps it is also worth the journey for many wealthy Jews. Jesus shoots him a glance. You believe important and powerful Hebrews will be there? Possibly. You're very keen, Simon. The most important and powerful person I know will be there. Simon says, yeah. Jesus says, my mother. (laughs) Isn't your mother from Nazareth? Andrew calls out from behind them, but his joke falls flat. This thread of does anything good come from Nazareth is all through the chosen, and it really drives home the fact that nobody could believe that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. That just is is utterly unthinkable to everyone. And Peter says, you should announce yourself to the guests, Simon says, right? There'll be no Romans. Seems like a perfect place to gather more followers, to get this whole thing moving. And Jesus says, it's not my special day, Simon. It's the special day for the couple, Asher and Sarah. They're blessed to have you at their wedding, Andrew says. Do they know what a remarkable thing it is? Jesus says, well, considering that I was the clumsy teenager who cracked my head open at Asher's when he was a child, I don't think he finds me all that remarkable. And Jesus looks at Andrew. Do you think much of your childhood friends? And Simon says he didn't have any making Jesus laugh. And that's not true, Andrew says. I stand corrected. Simon holds up his hands. He had me. Compulsory service. And so it goes. Now, like I said, this is in the bookstore if you're interested, and and I uh, commend you to it, and the audio version, and by all means, watch this series and be blessed. You'll see yourself in the cast of characters. I guarantee you, because they're like you. They're like me. And that means that like you and me, we frequently find ourselves with incorrect expectations from Jesus. We come to church looking for something that we really shouldn't expect to find here. And if I'm honest, there's times when we come here expecting to find it and we want it so bad we make it happen here even if it shouldn't happen here. And that is what I referred to several weeks ago as counterfeit Christianity. We have to push only so far as it takes to follow our Lord wherever he's going and to recognize what he is doing as the only worthy endeavor. 
But is that what we do? Is that what Simon wanted to do? He was already working hard to manage Jesus's agenda and help him succeed at his uh, chosen calling to, well, in their case, rid the world of the Romans, especially the Jewish world. I wonder if our expectations as Christians would change if we were oppressed. If we were oppressed, would we have different desires when we come to church to worship? We call it worship, and that is frankly not about us. If you worship in church, who do you worship? Is it me? Is it the praise band? Is it, uh, is it this building with its new signs and new paint? Is it, is it you? Did you come to worship you? Now, you might think that's absurd, but what's on your mind when you're getting ready for church on Sunday morning? What are you planning to experience on your way to church on Sunday morning or whenever you come? And my challenge to you is that last question that I asked twice. What if it turns out that it's not about what you want or need from the Lord, but it's about what the Lord wants or needs from you? The three years that the apostles walked with Jesus and learned from him was all about changing their thinking in that exact way. From the day they started, they were thinking about what he was going to do for them. And for them, there was nothing more important than getting rid of oppressors. And Jesus keeps saying, that's not my agenda, that's yours. My agenda is to end oppression, but the oppression that you need to be free from more than anything else on earth is the oppression of sin and death. And that is Jesus's agenda. And until you finally recognize that his goal is to free you from sin and death, you're not worshiping him as much as you're worshiping yourself. You're not worshiping what he wants. You're not serving his goals, you're serving your own. And you're expecting him and the religion to conform to those expectations. That's tough. It's a hard pill to swallow, but it's right there in your Bible. And it's fleshed out in a, I think, spirit-blessed way in The Chosen. So that's why I'm hoping you'll watch it, because you'll see yourself. And you'll recognize we're all like the apostles and those other disciples who followed Jesus we're people who desperately want him to be the center of our lives, but we keep asking him to meet us where we are and then stay there. But the story of the chosen people is that they are you and the ones Jesus encountered in those days who are set apart so that he can meet them where they are and take him to where he is going. That you were meant for bigger things than the very limited life and existence you experience in your home and in your workplace. And all, all of those things are wonderful and they're gifts from God. And yet they're meant to be experienced as secondary 
that your relationship with God is first and foremost, is primary. So the questions that I asked you at the beginning, hopefully are beginning to make sense to you. Why are you here? What do you come for? Who do you come for? What if it's not about what you want or need from the Lord, but what about the Lord wants or needs from you? Is that what you're looking for? See, Jesus came to repair the disconnect between us and God, between earth and heaven that was caused by sin and that caused death to be an inevitable part of our lives on earth and the pain and the suffering that always seems to accompany it. Jesus came to fix that, and the fact is is that the chosen people are now defined not as one uh, sort of group of people born out of Abraham's seed, but a group of people who have accepted his invitation to come and see. To come and see. The last words in the Bible say this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who can hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's an invitation to follow him instead of asking him to follow you. It's an invitation to accept his yoke, that is his teaching, his leadership, his instruction. The only burden you have to bear is faith and the unexpected, an agenda that is only clear and understandable to the Lord himself. But the closer you get and the more you follow him in faith, the more it makes sense to you too. then you will be truly the chosen. And I hope and pray that the worship here evolves very quickly into more and more absolutely unbridled worship, like you just can't help it. That you're this, just that obsessed with Jesus, so full of his spirit and love that you worship him like that. And if you do, you'll find that you see each other the way he sees each of us too. And that changes everything. Let us pray. Almighty God, you have heard the words I've spoken and I pray with all my heart they have come from you. Now I pray, please, Lord, burn into the hearts of your people only that which was from you and erase from their memory anything that was not of the Spirit. For your name's sake, I pray, amen.